0: Converters powering. Done. Booting to disk. Done. Loop capacitors functioning within normal limits. Proceeding. This episode is about two episodes of Black Mirror that have to deal with uh, the simulation uh, and time loops, but they're pseudo-time loops. Um, this episode is going to be discussing White Bear and Hang the DJ. and I think there's a, a question in it that I'm gleaning from it, from my own questions about about life and fairness and good and evil, what is just or unjust. White Bear uh, is about a woman named Victoria who comes to consciousness with total amnesia. She doesn't remember anything about who she is or where she is or why she's there. In the episode, she is beset by a world of watchers where the majority of people are staring at her with their phones and they're filming. She's being chased by hunters who want to kill her and torture her to death slowly in various ways. There's a number of them. And it seems that even the people that are on her side, apparently, they're not really on her side either. She's unsure who to trust. Uh, It's a very simple episode. She gets pursued through a number of situations where the hunters almost kill her. And although she's protected by the people she's with, it seems that they're not really doing it for themselves, or they're not doing it for her, they're doing it for themselves. They're rebels against a world that's built deliberately to be unjust. The majority of people are either watchers or hunters. The Watchers don't interfere as the Hunters attempt to kill them in various ways. But the only target ultimately in the end appears to be Victoria. Why this is, she doesn't learn until the very end of the episode. So there's some spoiler alerts, but it's a simple episode. It follows that she's committed a horrible crime, uh, where she and her boyfriend kidnapped a child, and he tortured the child to death slowly and horribly. And she filmed it for the voyeuristic enjoyment, and her punishment for that is to have her brain electrocuted every day, her memory erased, and then for her to be woken up in this world where she's horrified in numerous ways, in the end, only to learn that she's actually in a simulation in front of a giant audience of people who are the audience, the watchers, who... Watch her with the hope of condemning her uh, and getting out there their need for justice. Uh, by by chasing her through what appears to be a safari, a safari built deliberately designed to to torment and torture her. And when Victoria learns in the very end who she really is, she protests that she's innocent. That she didn't know, or that she was coerced by her boyfriend to be the watcher, but he's dead, she is not. They can target and punish her for her crime. Now we're left in the audience with the sense of the rightness of it, because of what she does to the child is is so horrible it can't be forgiven. Yet she's never, she's she's never uh made to look unspeakably unsympathetic by by Brooker. Charlie Brooker has decided that, and we agree with him, that what she's done, and it is horrible, is worthy of her being punished for eternity in an endless pseudo-time loop, because her memory is erased. She has to go through this over and over and over again. And the question I'm left with, in spite of of our ruling, which I don't think is wrong, But is it really fair? In the Talmud, it suggests that if you've committed a terrible crime against the universe or against God, that the defense that you have in order to defeat the judgment is that you're no longer the person who committed those crimes. You're no longer the entity. You're repentant. Uh, you, You feel sorry, and you recognize what you've done is wrong, and you want forgiveness. That that's enough to protect you. In Christianity, that might be the case because Christ sacrificed himself to save us from sin. But what if that's not so? And what if there is no, no forgiveness, neither deserved nor attainable? And that's the case for poor Victoria. For even when she begs them to kill her at the very end of the episode, they won't do that. They electrocute and fry her brain more which is a horrible torture in itself while she's having her mind electrocuted and erased slowly she's forced to watch the film that she shot where the boyfriend tortures an innocent child to death which is is truly horrible we come away with this with the only conclusion being that she's getting what she deserves for her to do that to an innocent we tend to believe that a guilty person is punished and they're getting what they justly deserve. But is Victoria actually getting what she truly deserves? Is she innocent or is she guilty? She's guilty because she did it. She's innocent because she doesn't remember what she did. Her memory gets erased every day. And because she's not the same person, she's not the one who was with that guy that tortured the child is she getting what she deserves? If we're looking at this from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, the answer is yes, she's getting what she deserves, because anybody who would torture a child gets what they have coming to them, no matter how horrible it is. But is it? Because... If, if a system as sophisticated as Orthodox Judaism would conclude that a Talmudic defense for what you've done is that you're no longer the entity who did that and you deserve mercy because you're a different entity and now you would never commit such a crime, you're not made up of the same stuff that led you to commit that crime, and since you cannot commit it then it's as though you have not and that you deserve mercy because of this, Victoria gets no mercy. Now, the next one is Hang the DJ. Hang the DJ, where it's a pseudo-time loop because it's running a simulation. And what happens is it's like a dating app. And these people sign up for the dating app, and it's able to match you with some sort of algorithm or something. The algorithm is 99.8% effective. You learn at the very end that out of a thousand cases, 998 of them properly match it up. Now, so two out of a thousand uh, the simulacrum don't, aren't compatible. So why are they compatible? Because the world that they're trapped in, they're forced to have romantic trysts randomly Uh, with partner after partner after partner. They're taught and they're programmed to trust the system. The system will always find the right match for you. Because the system is trusted, people go into these trysts without question or defiance over and over and over again. Yet they've gone through one where the right people were matched and they had a brief period of time where they're compatible and that's considered love. They're compatible. But then they're forced to spend the rest of their lives with people with whom they're not compatible. And in the very end, they're forced to be matched up forever with someone with whom they're not compatible. But they're given a couple of minutes at the end to say goodbye to the most significant relationship that they've ever had. And now the simulacrum is testing. Will these people rebel against the system or will they obey? In order for them to rebel against the system, they defy the, the programming, they defy the coach, and they attempt to escape over the wall to be together. <clears throat> Which is, of course, a real test for someone being in love. Is Are they willing to defy the whole universe? Are they willing to defy the system to be together at all costs? Now, we don't really know, ultimately, are these people... Do they remember? Do these simulacrum have any kind of memory? And it turns out that they it appears that they don't. And in the end, what happens to them? Because, yes, they're run over and over and over again through this same set of trysts. And whether or not they defy the, the system is what determines whether or not the two people are compatible. And so what does it mean? They defy the system, they, they climb over the wall, And they attempt to escape the system so they can be together. But the last few sequences, they leave you with a sense of, on the one hand, it's a love story. And so the audience is left feeling good because, wow, well, they defied the system. They found each other. Except that the last sequence is, everything around them is disintegrating and it goes black. And they too, in the end, appear to be disintegrated along with everything else in the world. Then the system is rebooted, started up again, and run again. <clears throat> so is this just? Is this, is this fair? Well, if you're one of the simulacra, no. No, it's, it's decidedly unfair. Because once they've defied the system, the whole thing shuts down, reboots, and starts over again. For the two people walking in, it seems fair, because 99 out of 100, or even higher than that, they're matched with their desired mate. And they go into this unknowing uh, what's happened to the simulacrum in the five minutes or so since they program in the, the um, information. And do they know? Do they know that when they sign up for this, that they're actually creating these cookies? Like in other episodes of Black Mirror, they're creating these, these entities who are conscious and who are reconstructions of the people who've programmed in their information. Now, there's a strong suggestion that they don't. They just fill out the information, just like we do on iTunes, click, 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 click. They never read the service agreements. They just want to get through the system so they can have their their music. And it must be the same for these people on these dating apps. They just click, 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 click. They go through the system. It doesn't occur to them that they're creating these simulacra that are being put through... Uh, th- these, these different scenarios and that they are in fact being tormented and forced to rebel against the system so they can be disintegrated, rebooted and run through it again and again and again. Now is this really just? Now the people walking in, if they're unaware that they've trapped the simulacrum in this hell, ultimately it must be like hell, they don't know they've done this So it seems fair. They're not suffering. They walk in, they get their their, uh, mate matched by a system that's infallible. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of of the people, the simulacrum, it's profoundly Kafka-esquely unjust. Because what's happening is they're being tested over and over again. And then in the end, when they rebel against the system, the numbers are tabulated somewhere and then the whole thing is deleted. We don't know. We don't know in the end. We feel really good cuz hey, it's a love story and they find they find each other and right? Should we feel reassured by this? Because we don't know. We don't know. People all the time, people are coping with situations in their lives that are are manifestly unfair. And We create our religions to tell us that it is, that there's some equalizing just entity up there who cares about our souls and our well-being and that that entity will eventually redress the balance. You know, the criminals will get what they've got coming, you know, and somehow the good people will get good, if not here, then in heaven. And the bad people will get bad, preferably here on earth and in hell. Um, But what if it is? What if it is a simulation? What if we do live in a simulation, and that simulation is profoundly and unjustly created and unfair? Well, we might react one of two ways. We, we say, well, there's a God, and we delude ourselves through our, our religions. Or we say there isn't, and we delude ourselves through our lack of religion. And we try to suggest, well, it is fair, because there's no one up there designing the system. And everything is on an equal level atheistic playing field. And so, of course, in that case, what makes it fair is the systems we build and the way we treat one another is what makes it fair or unfair. But what's fair and unfair? And I'm not an ethicist. I haven't the, the legalistic knowledge, uh, theology, theodicy. Uh, I've studied enough of that. And that's where people go through these tremendous gyrations to try to say, yes, it is fair, because if it is unfair, what do you do? There's no one to there's no one to turn to. It's like a Kafka story. It's like the trial. If there's a God, then He's done this to us deliberately, and He won't listen to us. If there isn't, then there's nobody to turn to. Then it's just this is just life. You got to suck it up suffer and be miserable and die. And, and who determines? Does, does the crowd? Does the audience? If you're in the audience, it seems fair because you're enjoying the spectacle. You're enjoying the punishment of, of the guilty. I mean, if, if uh, Harvey Weinstein had died of COVID-19, there'd have been a lot of happy people in the world. Cause he did horrible things. There's no no questioning that what he did was was horrible. He belongs in the prison where he is. But is that really enough? Most of his life. What about uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein? And he was murdered in prison. Uh, we're never going to investigate because they think he committed suicide. Which means all the people in his network are probably going to get away scot free uh, with with raping minors and and. Uh, creating a ring of uh, sexual slavery. I mean, there, there aren't too many things in the world that horrify us today the way that slavery must have once horrified uh, the Christian anti-slavery people 300 years ago. You know, we, we tend to think that our world's fairly advanced and because of democracy, it's relatively fair. But it isn't. It isn't. <clears throat> so we have to hold on to supernatural uh a ticker a supernatural someone who redresses the balance so so if harvey weinstein had died of uh, covid or if he'd afflicted some unspeakable cancer of the penis or something you know yeah we, we people would be happy right yeah he's getting what he had now the now his victims did they deserve it did they deserve how he raped them and attacked them and Uh, bullied them and intimidated them? I mean, surely they did not. They walked into it, they just wanted help with their career. Of course they didn't deserve it. There's no way anybody could assume that they did. But what if they did? What if there's a really horrible uh, balance beam somewhere that says, we're not only going to punish you for the crimes you've committed yesterday, but we're punishing you in advance for the crimes you'll commit tomorrow? And the punishment is backwards through time in this simulation in which we live. Suppose we live in a simulation, and the simulation is decided to punish us, whether there's a God or whether there isn't. It's irrelevant if there's a programmer, if there's an AI. What if the AI has decided, you know, well, you people are soulless monkeys, and you don't deserve justice or democracy or fairness. And the whole purpose of the A.I. is to punish the soulless monkeys for being soulless monkeys and to torment and humiliate them. And I've got to ask this because in both of these episodes, in Black Mirror's uh, White Bear and in Black Mirror Hang the DJ, on the first case, Victoria's memory is, is obliterated. She doesn't know that she's done these horrible things and is terrorized and tormented and tortured quite severely. It's almost like reviving, uh, putting somebody in the stocks. Because punishment used to be about, about uh, assessing the punishment, but also about shaming the one who, who is guilty. That's why Hester Prynne had a Scarlet A on her. That's why um, they would put people in the stocks in the middle of town in New England, and they would leave them there in the stocks to be spat upon or humiliated or have rotten fruit thrown at them, you know, like they did to Victoria. Uh, They're left to be humiliated by the members of their community whom they've betrayed. They've ruptured the relationship by, by sinning or by a severe crime, which we don't call it sin anymore now, we call it crime, but in either case... It's violating a, a sacred trust between members of the community. It's violating that, that agreement where we agree to try to do as little harm to one another as we can, while at the same time doing whatever we can to get ahead. Whoever is measuring what that means, what does ahead mean? What does success or failure mean? And we live in a particularly harsh culture, actually, because there's a, always a ticker. There's a, a scorekeeper. This one inside of our heads even um, that uh, determines our social standing in the hierarchy. You know, Jordan Peterson likes to talk about lobsters and the lobsters that are higher in the pecking order win their fighting with other males and they get access to the females. The ones who lose, the further down they keep losing, they keep falling down the spiral. Eventually they're so sick from depression that they can't fight back anymore and they just keep losing is that really fair? Well, if you're eating lobsters and you like lobsters the way the esoteric order of the Luciferian lobster like lobsters, you say, yeah, it's fair. We want the best lobster you can eat. This is just in nature. It's just the horrible, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? It's just the horrible computation that's that's required in a natural system for the survival of the fittest, you know, because we, we, we understand that when Darwin made that insight, <clears throat> it wasn't just, it wasn't a statement so much of mechanism, although it works just fine as a statement of mechanism, the survival of the fittest, the strong survive, the weak get weeded out, it's best for the survival of the species and in its evolution. But it's also a moral statement. The fittest have the inherent right to survive and to be the fittest. In whatever way we've concluded to measure fitness, that is, moral uprightness, it is those who deserve uh, to to have the advantages uh, afforded to them on earth as it is also in heaven. And now we we live in a Neoplatonic worldview where Plato said down here, we're in the cave, we're seeing what's reflected on the wall, the shadows on the wall, but that in a higher world, we get the full sunlight of day, and that's the wisdom of the philosopher, and that's the truth, the mechanism of the reality of of, uh, the Platonic uh, archetypes, the uh, forms, the Platonic forms, and there's a symmetry and a beauty to this world. But what if that's not quite what Plato meant? Because this world is a reflection of the higher worlds and it can only be a reflection of the higher worlds so it's assumed that these rules hold here and in higher worlds and so if you are the philosopher climbing up into the light of day you are one of the winners you are one of those who who you're the ascended lobster and you are in the full light of day and the fullness of your wisdom and the completion of your of your uh, totality In terms of forms, you've participated in the abstract forms of a higher world, you're more fit to survive. But again, there's a horrible geometry, a horrible uh, computation to this, that uh, if you've had a life, a miserable life full of pain, and you never reached the level of being a philosopher, then because of how you're made, you're getting what you deserve. You're getting the fullness of the punishment of, of reality. Meet it out upon you. Now, there are people right now, uh, in, in as I'm speaking in this world right now, okay, that are, are living miserable lives. And if you really start to disassemble it, it is not just, it is not fair. And there's no redress one can take. This is what existentialists tend to think. There's no way to correct the balance. I mean, really, as night is falling, you know, uh, compared to many, I'm, I'm fairly lucky, I'm fairly well-educated, I'm, I'm not homeless, uh, I'm not sick, per se, I'm disabled, but I'm not unwell, per se. And yet, as this night has fallen upon us, as I'm recording this, you know, there's, there's people within yards, maybe, of me, yards, maybe miles, but probably yards, who are dying a painful death, who are living a a painful existence with, with no way to break free from it, a tormented, torturous, lopsided, painful existence. Oh, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles. If you have anything approximating an intellect or a conscience, you have to protest against this. You have to. And I think what these episodes are asking, and and both in their own way, I can go into that a little bit, uh, White Bear is asking it, because White Bear suggests, is it really, is it really? Even if you're in the audience and you're fully justified, because the innocent child certainly did nothing to deserve the death the execution that was, that was given to her. She was kidnapped, tortured, and executed. <clears throat> she did not deserve it. She was a child. People get this all the time, every day here, in this world. People are, are, are oh, you just got to deal with the hands you're dealt. I, I can't, if I got a penny for every time I'd heard that, because they want it's a way to shut you up. And I'm, although I'm no fan of activists, because I think activists are the problem, They're not just responding to a problem. They are the problem. Uh, But they do, there is an inherent right to protest this. Um, But from my perspective, and I think for most people, they have a legitimate grievance, whatever that is. They have a legitimate and genuine reason to protest, to cry out against this, to say, no, this is not just. It is not. Victoria tries to do this uh she she desperately tries i mean she takes the tack of 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 i i didn't know this and then she takes the tack of well he forced me he he forced me to do this we we know that there are criminal couples you know and in certain cases we will we'll have some sympathy in certain cases we won 't i mean certainly in uh ian brady we we don't have sympathy for myra uh what 's her name i don't remember you know, where she she tries to suggest that, that Ian Brady, who was a child murderer, uh, dominated and intimidated her into helping him carry out his murders. We don't buy it, and we're right not to buy it. She took full participation in it and even enjoyed it. Okay, um, so there's Victoria. And we're delighted when that spooky Irish guy is cooking her brain. Uh, and the audience is delighted in... Uh, uh, the Justice Park, right? Is that is that really fair? I mean, wouldn't it have been better just to lock her up? I mean, and, and to not erase her memory and say, yeah, you, you you may have been coerced. We understand this. That's why we're not killing you. Uh, but you deserve to be in prison for the rest of your days. And I think most people would say, yeah, I deserve to be in prison if they aren't sociopathic. And oftentimes people who aren't sociopaths still do horrible things. And you have a lot of, you know, prisons are full of people who are innocent. They all say they're innocent. But there's there's some that are actually willing to say, yeah, I'm where I belong. I'm guilty. I deserve to be here. You know, uh, they, they don't want to be tortured beyond what appears to be uh, just. That's why we have something in our Constitution against cruel and unusual punishments. We, we do have a, a clause in our Constitution that tries to prevent, and that's as much to protect us as it is to protect uh, the criminal. It protects the criminal from, from an exceptionally uh, cruel sentence, which causes them, them uh, suffering, and it protects us from having to mete out such a punishment, um, because it, it can injure the one doing the punishment as badly as it injures the one being punished. And as as a as a society that we try to build on amicability, is that is that fair to take certain people out of our society and say, okay, you your job is to throw the switch on the electric chair and to put this person through an unspeakably agonizing death for what they've done? I think most of us would jump up and down. Oh yeah, sure, let me throw the switch. I mean. The guy who killed all these people in that bank robbery and raped and tortured. Yeah, let me throw a switch. I'm, I'm happy to throw. Is that really such a good idea? Because when you throw that switch, are you any better? And, and that's why you have people who, you know, and I don't know if, <clears throat> if I hold with them, but they're anti-death penalty, they say, no, no, because we have to be forgiving because we're Christian and we, we don't want to be as evil as the person uh, that we seek to punish. What if there's no other way? The only way you can punish them is to look into that abyss. And if punishment is to be handed down, then you must be a monster as well. Is that price one we should pay or one we shouldn't? Because I can tell you at the end of White Bear, that audience is pretty monstrous. And while the while we're cheering for them, yeah, <clears throat> they, they are monsters, I think Charlie Brooker goes to great pains, not out of sympathy for Victoria, but out of sympathy for us. He goes to great pains to demonstrate, yes, the, this is monstrous. These people are as evil as Victoria. And part of us might even say, well, well, good, Victoria's getting what she deserves. Maybe she is. But the cost, not just her, the cost that the majority, that the audience has to pay, is that worth it? Those people would walk out of there and they'll never have their innocence again, ever, even if they don't break <clears throat> the laws directly. They walk out of that justice park, and they know forever, until their dying breath, that they're not innocent. They know they're monsters. They know they're dark and they're evil. Can they really be at peace with that in themselves? Can they? Uh, and, and hasn't the, the punishment exceeded the crime yeah uh, i think i don't think charlie brooker wants the answer to ever be resolved that's the problem with ethics ethical questions never can never truly be resolved if they're truly ethical questions and then in uh, hang the dj what is what is the price we're willing to pay for happiness and so when they create these poor simulacra and they stick them in this pseudo time loop it's a time loop for them because they're deleted at the end every single time and it's just like Deadliest Warrior, where the simulation is run again and again and again. Uh, do do, uh, do the boy and girl find each other and decide to defy uh, the algorithm? They defy the coach at the last, so they can climb over the wall and be together forever. We're, we applaud that, because in our idea of romance, it goes all the way back to the troubadours, <clears throat> where you have uh, Tristan and Isolt. Okay, uh, where they're poisoned, they end up drinking a love potion, uh, and her chaperone says at one point, "Well, Tristan, you've drunk your death. You don't. You, she she's belongs to Mark, King Mark, and you've drunk your death because, in, especially in the Middle Ages, infidelity was you couldn't do anything worse than be unfaithful, and in in the Bible, if you go back even further, if they thought if they suspected infidelity they would usually make the the woman who had committed the infidelity drink a poison uh poison waters and and it would immediately make her ill and like burst open upon the ground you know so her illness her crime is there for all to see and now whether or not it's 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 chauvinistic uh uh, patriarchal uh, the bible seems to talk about punishing the women more than the men um so it does it does appear to be that way but i'm i'm not even trying to make a statement that it's right it's just, that's what it says and and maybe it is but but the fact is it it justifies punishing inf- infidelity uh worse worse than murder um even more than than murder because cain was allowed to live um but the unfaithful aren't. They're put to death. So so when Tristan and Isolde have, have drunk their, their death, they've drunk this love potion. In defiance of their society, in defiance of medieval society, of duty, because by duty, their marriage was arranged. Isolde belongs to King Mark. And King Mark is a forgiving, if not very weak man, because uh, he forgives Tristan and Isolde over and over again through the play. I mean the uh, the, what's it called? shit. Uh, And again and again, but they say, Tristan, you've, you've drunk your death. And he says something to the effect of, well, then so be it. If this is my death, then it's, it's ecstasy. And I accept it. If I'm to burn in hell for the rest of my life, for eternity, in order to have this love with, with her, she's my love, she's my life. I accept that too. And that's, that is effectively what the lovers in, um, hang the DJ. They're willing to defy the whole system that from the very beginning, they're told, is perfect and it knows all. And it's fair and it's just because it finds you the one you need. But it's deliberately designed to match you with the one who's worst for you as a torture, as a punishment, so that you'll be forced to make the choice. Do you defy the system? Uh, And they both did. In fact, it it was the woman who was stronger, actually, than the man. Because she defied it first, and she led him, and he followed her at once. Of course, uh, but it's almost as though Brooker is responding to Genesis, because in Genesis it was Eve who ate the apple for knowledge before Adam did. So who's worse? And and I've I've studied theology that tends to speak in both directions, where it says, you know, the typical chauvinistic uh, patriarchal Eve is worse because she betrayed. And and um, she's the one who ate the apple. It's all her fault. And that's two thousand years of Catholic theology and Christian theology is built on original sin on blaming Eve, and and men have unjustly blamed women for this fairy tale for two thousand years. And that's what it is. It's a fairy tale, okay. And women, real women, suffered real pain because of a of a of a fairy tale. But isn't it Adam? Why isn't it Adam? He he didn't have to say yes. He could have said, no, what you've done is terrible. I divorce you, right? He could have done that. No, I'm not eating this apple. I'm not obeying the devil. We've been told not to eat the apple on the tree of knowledge. And, and, and I say, no, you know, but Adam, who was stupider than Eve, which is even more ironic if you study the Gnostic scriptures, not only is Eve, the more intelligent, the man is, is dumb. She's also the source of life. She's often, she's called Zoe, which is Greek for, for life. Or she's given the wisdom of the snake. She's a goddess, which some scholars interpreted that to mean, well, the older societies uh, that were matriarchal valued the woman more than the man because she can bring life into the world. And hence, she deserves, and I'm not so sure I dissociate from this, she deserves greater respect because of her ability to create life. Men cannot. They can participate in the creation of life, and they're necessary for it, but they have nothing to do with, with creating it. They don't have anything to do with giving birth. They help bring about the circumstances that the child is born. But it's the woman who had the magic, and so it's thought that in matriarchal societies before the the, the tribes of the, the hunter-gatherer nomads who came and conquered everybody, if you go back to ancient Samaria or the primitive tribes in, in previous time, who worshipped the feminine principle more than the masculine, because it was the source of life. And the idea is that there was a a war uh, between these these two modes, modalities of of reality, but the men were better warriors, which of course they would be. And so their warriors conquered uh, the matriarchy and created patriarchy to overthrow and supplant the goddess-based religions in the favor of worshiping a god of zeus deus the god of the sky you know the the masculine principle is often equated with sunlight with stuff that comes from the sky the sacredness of the sky the rain and the earth with reception with darkness with yin and yin and yang yang is the sky the sun the giving principle yin is the female principle the receiving principle the female energy and and for most of our existence on this planet There were a balance between male and female energies. And usually, the male was associated with with height, with action, with principle, with with the light. It's the same in alchemy. Uh, The female principle is is dark, is mysterious, is receptive. It's more secretive, and it hides. The metamorphosis that occurs isn't visible. Um, But... It can't function without the giving principle. And when things are in their, in their balance, male and female energies, in both in us as well, in men and women on this earth, the male and female energies, when they're in harmony, you have a healthy person. That Jung built his whole uh, psychology around this idea of the animus and the anima. The male and female principles of the unconscious Um so, this it's, <clears throat> you know, it's, still, it's still a very compelling principle to this very day. So, when you, when you, when you drag these uh, two innocent people who don't know anything else, <clears throat> it's, it's like being in the Garden again, in the Garden of Eden. After all, when they defy God, what have they really done? And they do it in the name of love, as the troubadours and the Gnostics would have praised. And they climb the wall. They need to get over the wall to be in a place where they're free to love without, without uh, restriction. Um, so that, to me, is sort of an allegory. It's an allegorical response to, and we all know, we still are at least familiar with Genesis. Only in Genesis, Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience, are kicked out of the garden. Whereas in Hang the DJ... They choose to leave the garden. Well, it's not much of a garden. If you're going to be trapped with someone you despise for the rest of eternity, and they're not your match, then it makes sense to run away. But but lovers who try to run away, rarely, they don't do too well in our mythology for one reason or another. Romeo and Juliet, for instance. They didn't do so well when they decided to love in spite of their, uh, their warring families. They decided to defy them. That's why they were called star-crossed um and there's a a a similar principle whether or not it's the best scholarship i think is open to debate but the the great astrological procession of the equinoxes uh, we've gone from the ram to pisces to the fish and now we're passing out of the pisces the fish into the age of Aquarius. That's what that whole song always means, the Mayan calendar. That's what these things are referring to, is the procession of the equinoxes. And in, in the age of Ares was the warrior. Ares is to do with violence and war and conquest. But we went from there <clears throat> into the age of Pisces, which is Christian, the age of Jesus Christ, of mercy, uh, of, of um, of, of gentleness and forgiveness. The severity of, of Yahweh is tempered by the love of Jesus Christ. And so we're in this age of, of mercy. We're in the age of uh, where the weak uh, are not, you know, they're not uh, losers per se. Even if they're thrown down, they conquer in the end. Because in a previous time and in Islam, uh, the chosen one of God conquers Joshua takes the walls of Jericho down. But Jesus Christ, who could have crushed the Romans, he could have obliterated the Pharisees. He did in in their mental combat of the law, he beat them every time. He dies. He dies. It's his death that frees people from from prison and from sin, not his victory. Now what does that mean? You can read Paul and say, "Okay, death, where is thy sting?" Yeah, fine. You know that doesn't change the structure of of the myth where he had to sacrifice himself in his, in his blood in order to, and that's, that's the age of Pisces. The more esoteric thinkers would say, well, that's suggestive of the change of, of the procession of the equinoxes from the dominance of, of the ram, of, of Aries, of a warlike mythology, into the uh, age of Pisces, of mercy, of weakness, of, of conquest through, through sort of a guilt uh, where the innocent, I mean, the, what, what's more punishment than this? He is the Son of God. He is truly innocent. He is totally good in all things. He's good. He's merciful. He's loving. And he has to die. Well, we balance that out by saying, well, yes, but he rose again. But he didn't rise in triumph. He rose and talked to a couple of people who didn't believe him. Uh, and then he went all, he ascended to heaven. I mean, a few of them did by the time he left them, but it's because he left them. If he hadn't left them, would they really have? Oh, wow! He really was the one. You know, they they may not have. They may have all been doubting Thomases. And I'm I'm not trying to convince anybody of uh, to change their theology or anything else. This is this is just the structure of these myths. And and looking at these myths, is is Charlie Brooker drawing from some of this tradition, um, to give us these these allegories? Could they be? I mean. Oh, they're just sci-fi stories. Yeah, they're just stuff we watch on Netflix. We enjoy them. Yeah, they're allegories. He's not writing in a vacuum and we're not watching it in one. There's a, a hermeneutical interconnection, an interchange that we bring into these stories every time we watch them. And so in our case, what is that? It's, it's you know, uh, the, the Disney, the different fairy tales, romantic fairy tales, uh, the happily ever after idea. The whole concept of of marriage is a gigantic fairy tale. The whole idea that you're gonna find the right person, be matched with them, and what does it mean? Happily ever after means effortlessness. It means bliss. No, married people don't get that at all. They, they, it's exceptionally difficult to live with another human and to compromise with them and to make uh, uh, different agreements with them and covenants it's extremely difficult to build a balanced and sustainable relationship. It's very, very hard. And most people don't succeed. I mean, that's our divorce rate. Is it, is it really so high because um, people are weak? Well, yes, but it's also so very high because this is difficult. It is difficult. There's no happily ever after. You might be with the right person, and there may be a kind of contentment ever after, and a kind of balance, a kind of harmony. One call, couldn't possibly conceive of calling it happy. It's difficult. It's very, very hard work, and that again, it goes back to that Judeo-Christian ethic. You you will live by the sweat of your brow. You have to work for the things you have in, in life, and that's why so often, I mean, don't don't we accuse one another all the time? You know, there are people out there that, um, you know, people get accused. I've seen disabled, sick and dying people get accused of this. It's like, wait, what more could they possibly do? Well, you're called lazy. You're called uh, loafing. You're, you're malingering. You're, you're uh, not trying hard enough. Well, who the hell has the right to tell me that? How do they know how hard I have to try? You don't, and you don't know what's inside of another person. You don't know. It may even look from the outside, like they're being given an easy life and chances are they are but we don't really know this and yet constantly we we will pass judgment and we'll condemn someone for not they're not trying they're not living up to their fullest potential and maybe it's correct maybe it isn't Um, and and that person may agree they may not it may be just it may be unjust it's it's unresolved it's unresolvable like the best ethical questions are unresolvable <clears throat> which, I mean, ethics, ethics, and, and well, the, the, the religious branch of ethics, I guess you'd say, is theodicy, where they're trying to mold the divine into something that makes sense. And, I mean, they've failed quite miserably at this. I have no respect whatsoever for theodicy. It's, it's almost a contemptible uh, stream of thought. Because who, who, who are we? I mean, by, by doing that, we're proving religion is untrue. We're proving that it's a myth. <clears throat> Another fairy tale, which it is. Um, and then we're punishing classes of people for not conforming to the fairy tale. And we do that in, whether it's in our secular society, what has to do with love, has to do with work, has to do with vocation. Or whether that's in a, a more religious society, which for it has many virtues that might have gone for it in the past, but it has many terrible shadow side as well. And it's unresolvable. It's, it's, it's unresolvable. And so in Hang the DJ, you're, you're left with, if you're a really sensitive viewer, which I'm sure everybody is that's listening to me, um, <clears throat> you might feel good because those two people... Their eyes met across that room, and their their tablets told them, "Yep, you've there's your match. Ding, 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 ninety eight out of a hundred, or ninety nine point eight out of a hundred. There you go. Have a good time. You, you know, you 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 have your love. We've we've designed. We we know we've matched you. Will you feel a sense of, of of warmth? Because in love stories, you've got it at the end, right? The you, the boy has to the boy and the girl or." Well, depending on who you ask, but the, the interlocutors have to find each other and have a, a, a chance, a loving relationship. We seem to think that that's a good thing. And it is. But is that really just? If you ask the simulacrum who are trapped in that world with the coach and the deliberately designed unjust structure to push them into defiance whether they're compatible or not, is dependent on their defiance. Is that really fair? Is that what they deserve? Is that genuinely a, a system that, that we should praise, that we should say is good? Because fair and good equate to the same thing. Well, maybe if some, what if something is fair? Maybe it is fair, but it's not good. What if fairness is evil? What if the whole idea of fairness you know, because people have different needs and different requirements, and are built at different stature. Like I'm five six, I'm one hundred and fifty five pounds. I, I can only drink a certain amount of water. I can only, eat, okay. What if I'm forced to eat the allotment of someone who's five foot one and weighs a hundred pounds? Is that fair? Well, sure it is. If you're, uh, if you're a, 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 a Maoist or a Marxist or whatever, yeah, because everybody gets the same amount. And that's fair. We don't, we don't allow capitalists to, to take from the mouths of the hungry. Everybody is the same. Everyone is exactly equal. No, no. The, there's, there's nothing less in nature that we could come up with, any, any, anything we could apply to nature. There's nothing less natural than egalitarianism. It isn't there. There is no egalit. There's weaker. There's smaller. There's bigger. There's stronger. There's more fearful. More sickly. More powerful. Uh, Darwin's survival of the fittest. I think it's an appalling moral. We we, we've decided that we don't like that as an outwardly uh, visible moral ethic because, after all, we've fought against warlike nations. We've tried to create something approximating fairness in our forms of government, uh, and to, to, to stop these nations from brutalizing other nations. Um, you know, so, so there's sort of an inherent, um, in humanity, there's, there's this inherent, uh, this this inherent element inside of us that protests against this, um, that, that we deserve some kind of fairness. But in most cases, they're not asking for fairness, they're asking for mercy. If they're asking for fairness, then we would. We'd all get the same allotment at the beginning of everything, and we'd have at it, you know, the faster ones are gonna win the race. That's fair, that's fair to the one who's faster. They win the race, they deserve to win the race. We say no. You're not allowed to win the race. We don't want you to win the race. We we're all just as fast. Everyone is a winner of the race. Like no, if you, if you even for 2 seconds think about that. That's absurd. You're you're punishing the fastest. You're making the, the, the you're punishing the minority for what's best about them. I mean by the minority I mean the winner. I mean the only one who can win the race, not the 99 others out of 100 who by virtue of not being number 1, they can't win the race and so what capitalism is trying to say is well, well we'll build other games then you might lose at one but you'll win another which i think is a, is a good way to distribute the potential for victory but it's not fair so much as it is it's it's open and it it gives you a chance to have another race where you win and you're the disputed you're not the you're the you're the undisputed winner it's fair only in <clears throat> that the multiplicity of games hands you as many chances and as can possibly be constructed to have your shot at winning. It's not fair because it's giving you a level playing field or a fair chance. It's not level and it's not, it's not a fair chance. It's a multitude of chances. And sooner or later, the one where your stature is greatest will be the one where you have your victory, a victory you deserve. And yet we have all these other forces in our society. I want to rob you. I mean, is, this, is that fair? I mean, it's unresolvable. It's ethics. It's unresolvable. What's the answer? There isn't one. You, you, we're left with a sense of, of uncertainty, and we should be. I think we ought to be uncertain. Uh, I tend to think that, as, as hard as my life has been, capitalism is the best system we can build in our society, our civil government, our, our construct. It's, it's the best way. It's better than all the other political systems we've ever tried or the other forms of exchange and commerce that we've designed in these bigger uh, societies. Used to call them, until very recently, they were called empires, but now we call them nation-states. You know, uh, the best way is to recognize the multitude of people who are built of all shapes and sizes and are built of all capacities, give them as many different chances as we can to play games that we will be winners in. And it's not by virtue of egalitarianism that everybody has a fair shot, because there isn't fairness. It's by virtue of the multitude of games that you'll find the game that you can win at, that you deserve to have your victory and not have it stolen from you by others. And you you have that victory. And in that sense, you can say, I'm a winner because this whole, this whole culture is built around winners. We don't, we don't want to lose, and we don't, we don't like it when others lose, that we care for. We like it if others lose, that we think are, are somehow criminal and have an unfair advantage, uh, which is the, the, the anger that's being harnessed in our election. Maybe it's just, maybe it isn't. It's unresolvable. Is it really, is it really fair that there are people in the world who are so wealthy... That they've constructed a system, and I know I promise not to get political, and I I, I swear I won't, I'll I'll deviate at once, but just for the question, for the sake of the argument of the question, is it really fair that we allow a system that gives some people the advantages of wealth such that they're so wealthy they can redesign the very system of, of economic wealth such that they continue to win without effort? Is that really right? to keep the rest of them poor, irregardless of their ability. Is that really right? Is it right to, to take their well, riches from them? Maybe they've worked very, very hard for those riches. Is it right that people who lack the capacity and will never have it to play in those games, those games of, of money acquisition, is it really right to rob them and what, to redistribute, what, who decides how much? Who decides, well, what, first of all, how much? Is Do we take from them to eradicate what? Uh, well, suffering and poverty. Okay, medicine, okay. Should we all have universal health care? I kind of think so. But I don't really know what universal is, and I don't really know what health care is. Well, everyone should have the health care that they need to not be sick. Okay, I think I understand what that is. I'm not sure I do. But let's say I do. And All right, fine. <clears throat> but is it really fair? I mean, is it? Is uh, it? It's it's is it really fair to say? Um, is it really fair to say to Victoria? And and again, I can't get past the fact that I think it is because what she did to the kid was horrible. What is the cost that the audience has to pay though? The people in the audience—they have their fun, and are they any better? They're no better than she when they're throwing stuff at her and humiliating her and attacking her. And they're even paying to do it. So you you have to assume they're paying money to participate in this in this criminal, uh, this justice park safari. Let's torture Victoria this evening, right? They're paying to do that, and they're gleefully doing it. And one assumes that the audience is paying to pay for her imprisonment. That it isn't, you know. Then in the in their world as in ours, uh, in order for the punishment to be carried out, society as a whole takes upon itself the collective. Cost of paying for the prison and and locking up the person, and and sharing the cost of of um, punishing them for the remainder of their natural-born lives for whatever crime they've committed. And and again, I'll tell you what: if that were me, I'd be in that audience because there's nothing to me more unjust than being a child. And and if if you've been if you've been through any kind of child abuse and and God, I hope you've not. But if you have, and many of us have, you know there genuinely, truly is nothing more unjust and unfair than having your parents or your relatives when you're a child abuse you simply because they love inflicting pain on on the weak. And we know they're sociopaths. We know there are people who enjoy torturing animals. We know this. There are people who enjoy beating up their children. We know this. There are people who enjoy the tears uh, of their spouses. We know this. This these these are facts. These are these are undeniable truths. That there are people in the world who the more somebody else cries, the more they smile. We know this. This this is just that's reality. Fair or not, whoever wrote this simulation that we're living in decided that that was a key element of the simulation of the of the source code of the simulation is. That people enjoy the 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 suffering of others, whether it's gainly one or ungainly one. You know, if you if you win that race because you're the fastest runner, or if your team smashes that other team, what's more enjoyable than watching that other team cry in their defeat? Well, we try to mitigate this somewhat by saying, well, if they're sportsmanlike, if they play their best, then even if they lose, they don't really lose because they played their best. Who judges this? Now, if you're, if you're a coach, if you're a football coach or something, and you understand the intricacies of the game, and you really know technically to the very nth degree, okay, how capable are these people of playing good football? And did they play good football to the best of their ability? Even if they lose, if they gave it everything they had, those are always the best games. You know when they even if they lose badly, if damn it, if they try their absolute level best, nobody will humiliate them in the end for losing. You know that's that's the I guess that's the uh, the sense of justice in in humankind where we'll say, well, look, yes, they were beaten, but they played to the nth degree of their capacity, and we we know enough about the game to recognize that they did. So if it's like a, a one point then they both won. It 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 yes they had to lose, someone had to be given the victory because there have to be winners. They deserve respect because they or, or Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, right? Nobody's going to nobody's going to go to Joe, Joe Frazier. I mean he's dead now, but I mean n- nobody would have walked up to him and called him a loser because he lost. No, he he was blind and he was still throwing punches at Muhammad Ali and he took blow after blow after blow, even Muhammad Ali. Um, um, I I'm don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but at one point he said, look, because Frazier was, they thought he was going to die. He was in the hospital practically on his deathbed because of the beating that Muhammad Ali gave him. And he said, and he hated this man. He hated Joe Frazier. That's the thing. We, uh, maybe, and we should, we, you know, Muhammad Ali, we admire him. He had a great, he was a humanitarian man in his later years. <clears throat> but these men loathed each other; they despised each other. Um, yet Muhammad Ali was so moved by Frazier being the gladiator that he was, and he basically said, "If if Joe Frazier dies, I'll never fight again. If he dies, I will never fight again." Right? Or some of you may remember this; uh, you may not. Boom Boom and Duku Kim. Right? That's like the battle of the early eighties. I remember seeing that as a child this this korean fighter it was an exhibition fight but they fought to the death now certainly neither one of them intended to to kill the other fighter but that's the level that they fought at and dooku kim was prepared to die he would rather have his victory or die and he died the last round of the fight, this blow was delivered, and they didn't know they didn't have the right enough medicine knowledge of medicine. The blow that he received did so much damage to his brain. He went into a coma and he died. And he never he never woke up. He died. What happened? Well, it destroyed Boom Boom Mancini. It ruined him, because that that's he didn't want to kill the guy. He wanted to beat him, sure, but he but now the guy's dead. I mean, and that's one of the great taboos if, if, if you, in our society. If you kill another human being, I mean, our, our movies notwithstanding, killing somebody else is the greatest crime you can commit. But he wasn't a criminal. It was an accident. He hit him. The blow landed just right. He fell. His brain was damaged and filled with blood, and he died. That's not his fault. You, you, you can't say he committed murder because he didn't. But he did kill. And what happens then? It, it ruined him. It, it, you know, uh, and, and there have been a few other boxing matches where this happened, where it's, 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 you have to look at it and say, well, it's a, it's a calamity. It's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Because neither one of them intended for the other to die. They wanted to win, but they didn't want to do it by the, the guy's death. And that leaves irrevocable destruction on the, the one who survives it it it's the guilt the the um uh, uh, the the self loathing the <laughs> the self hatred like like how could I kill how could I do this yeah and so those people in that crowd throwing that stuff at victoria are they if they have a conscience, maybe they don't, maybe the whole crowd is sociopathic, maybe we should be if people torture children, maybe there should be. Neither mercy for them nor the feeling of mercy, but but there is. If you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back into you. and so the the way to, to, to torture the criminals such that it's a just punishment, we have to be as evil as they are. We have to in order to to reach the depths where we can correctly mete out the the pain, the suffering against them for the crime they've committed. Um, are those people gonna go home later that night, you know, watching their film because they'd probably watch it over and over again uh are they going to stop and think to themselves? I mean, this poor woman that you know she she gets her mind erased every day, she doesn't understand what she's done because one of the the key elements both of punishment and of forgiveness is the person has to know what they've done how they've transgressed and that it's wrong. And we prefer that they feel some sort of remorse. You know, we're willing to be merciful against those who have some semblance of remorse for what they've done. It's after the fact, it's too late to change it, but at least we can understand. Well, then, you know, they know they've done wrong. They know, and they feel badly for it. That's why some of these p- people are particularly horrifying to us. They they go right to their sentence laughing you know, these sociopaths who've killed people and they've they've enjoyed it, and serial killers, uh, there are, you know, our boogeymen. And they will go to their prison, you know, a Christopher Watts, okay? He murdered his family. That's like the greatest sin you can commit. I mean, in America, the ideal structure of society is to be built of small units called families. And they're fairly harmonious. You know, two people get married. They have their love affair. They're the right ones for each other. They've been matched by the system uh, 99 out of 100 times. The system says, well, you you can live happily ever after. You bring some children into the world, and you have this unit called a family. It's a sacred institution, even in a secular society. It's sacred. Christopher Watts killed his whole family, and he did it so he could screw some some chick who's evading punishment now. I think she's as, as, as culpable as he was. He's in prison, but she's walked away. The one he had an affair with, uh, she should be imprisoned as well. But aren't we horrified by the idea that that he 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 looks back on that without any real remorse? He still talks about loving his family, and now he can say, "Oh well, Jesus Christ has saved me," and he's he's in there in that prison, uh, becoming a a prison minister, a prison pastor. Okay. No, he's never actually seen the errors of his ways. Uh, whereas, and at some point I want to talk about this, the, the 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 poor little girl who, you know, her friends nearly murdered her, the, the Slenderman killings, I want to talk about this in one of the future episodes, uh, the girl that nearly killed her was schizophrenic. She is a childhood schizophrenia. It's very, very rare. She was out of her mind when she nearly murdered a friend that she loved. She didn't want to kill her. She felt compelled to kill her by Slender Man. She, it seems, definitely does recognize that she's committed wrong. And so we we have to look at this as as an unspeakable tragedy, not just for the obvious reasons. It's a tragedy because it isn't as if she had a choice in in being a schizophrenic. And rightly, she is consigned to a mental hospital for the criminally insane pretty much for the rest of her life, which is where she belongs until we have a better control and cure for schizophrenia uh, if they've committed a criminal offense like that and, and that's then that's where they need to be. They have to be it, it's not as harsh as a prison. it's not a penal facility which is unfortunately many of our inmates are are mentally ill and Chris would know more of this than I. Uh, they don't belong in a prison, they belong in a hospital, but they still need to be somewhere shut away from society because they're too damaged to follow the rules of the games that we've designed, that we've built in our society. The game's built across a wide spectrum, so though, although it's not fair, it's as close as we can get to there being a game somewhere, sooner or later, a game that you'll win. and And, and they can't really obey these dictates uh, the social niceties because they're nuts. They can't follow the rules that we've prescribed because they follow a different rule that's, that's written by the, the, uh, the, um, the chaos of their inner turmoil, the chaos of their, of their madness. And they would just run rough shod. They would just, we can't allow it. We, and I think rightly, we, we don't have good treatments for them yet. It's still archaic and medieval, but it's the best we have. They're trying to figure out now that they're beginning to understand how the brain works. I mean, we're a million miles away from actually being able to do very much good for the brain, but we're starting, we're getting there. I mean, at least now we understand hallucinogens are good things, that they can heal people. We're, we're, we're beginning to understand uh, ch- childhood uh, Ace scores affect the functionality of your brain for the rest of your life, and we're starting to figure out ways to compensate for these uh, de- traumas, these disabilities, um, because there, there is it's in it's inborn in us in our societies uh, that people who are uh, disabled or they're disadvantaged in some way so severely that that they can't play most of the games in our society that we we figure out ways to support them enough. Okay, that's that's why we had uh, a South African runner who had his legs amputated. So what does he do? He pays us back. And he's a winner. He was probably one of the fastest runners who ever lived. And, 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 and he was an inspiration for all of us who are disabled. For me, and I don't follow the Olympics, I don't really care. You know, but Oscar Pistorius was still an inspiration to me because of what he overcame and what he did and who he was. Uh, a, 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 you have to call him courageous because he transcended all of his limits. Um, and what does he do? He, in a paranoid fit of, of, of anger, uh, he, he pumps his girlfriend full of holes and kills her. The, a supermodel girlfriend blows her to hell, blows her brains out the back of her skull and, and kills her. Well, he's remorseful, which is probably why the South African courts didn't have him put to death at once. And he actually is going to get out of prison. He he won't be able to run. But, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. It's it's horrible if you're in prison for 20 some odd years. But if you get out when you're 50 years old, you're not going to drop dead yet. You still have some years left. You can still have something approximating a uh, life. Um, and, and, you know, God knows now they're coming up with they're coming up with life extension you know it may be that right now we live 75 years and for most of those years healthy the last 10 or so might be hard and we're frail and they could extend those 75 years to 125 it's not far off now they've done it in mice they're able to double the lifespan you know if you so you assign someone 25 years to life and they're, let's say they're 25 years old, 25 years to life. He gets out at 50 years old. He's a model prisoner. Let him out. He's 50. Well, if your lifespan is to 125, that's kind of like a five or 10 year stint for robbery is now, right? You commit an armed robbery, you go to jail for five or 10 years, you get out, you're a felon, but you have a, a you have a shot. And, and a lot of these people get out of jail and they, they do okay. Is that right? Is it, is it wrong? They've paid their debts after all. We've assigned them a debt. They've paid it. Now we let them out again. We're supposed to clear the slate off for them, but that never happens, but we're supposed to. And we, we have this sense of you know, people that are unjustly, it seems, saddled by some burden, some something physically broken in them or mentally or whatever it is. We need to try to help them as best we can so they can have something of, of their dignity. You know, so we don't lock blind people up, uh, people in wheelchairs with deformities. We don't lock them up now and write laws against them, uh, where they can never go out on the street again because they're too ugly. And we don't, we don't believe in, in aborting or euthanizing uh, disabled children. You know, uh, we 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 have something in us that that steers toward the ethical, toward the light you know but what what you know what what is is it is it right is it fair what what are, what's the answer what are the ethics you know and it's as i've said is it is it right that victoria is being electrocuted is it right that those people are reveling in her her punishment made the more exquisite because her memory's being erased every day so she never has a chance to repent because she never knows what she's done she wakes up in that time loop every day She can't remember who she is. She can't remember why she is where she is. Why are these people coming after her, you know, with such zealousness? Why? And that's supposed to increase, by increasing her suffering, it increases the enjoyment of the society, of the sinned against. uh, Because Victoria and her boyfriend sinned against society by murdering the child. Okay, well, this is great on behalf of the family of the child. It's obvious that it's recognized how horrible what she did to the child was, but is it? Is it's et- this is et- this is the aggravating thing about ethics, okay? Because you you can't ultimately you if it's really an ethical question, eventually you have to. Hey, you just have to look inside yourself and decide, this is how I feel, I've weighed the balance, this is what I've decided. You have to, because if you don't, it'll go on forever, and you'll never be free of it. But the thing about ethical questions is there's never a, a sound refutation of one side or the other, of the argument. Okay, If you read enough of the Talmud, under a Talmudic code of law, what they did to Victoria would be absolutely unjust and unacceptable, even though she'd done an unspeakable, crime it's still unjust because you're you're punishing a a being who didn't do it she has no knowledge that she did it it's the same as if she didn't do it then it would be it would tell mutically it would it would be uh it would be unjust because she can never feel like the the punishment fits the crime because we, we are naturally revolted by this the punishment has to fit the crime and in order to fit the crime you have to be aware of the crime you've done even a sociopath is aware that they've committed the crime. What, what horrifies us about them is they feel no remorse for the crime they've committed. And they laugh at us. Um, but, but they still know what they've done, you know. And, and everyone else knows what they've done. But in the case of Victoria, she has no idea. And the only reason they're doing that to her is to increase, to, to make her in the place of the child right? To put her in the hell that she put the child through. And so it seems just because look what she did. Um, but, but is it, I think in the end, I think in the end, Brooker says, yeah, it's just, it's where she belongs. And, and, and I think most of us in the end will agree with Brooker in the end. It's like, ultimately you've got to come down on one side or the other, but it really isn't. I'm not saying, It isn't ultimately, believe me, agree with me that it's not, but it has to be said that even if you come down and you're in the audience and you're like, yeah, Victoria, take this you evil, witch," you, you know, okay, that doesn't negate its injustice. It just, it just suggests that we accept, we have to accept the evil upon us. And, and in spite of it, we know that it's evil. And we do it anyway because ultimately we've concluded that for her, for what she did, it, it is just. It is a fair punishment. And I'm, I'm way outside my depth. I'm no ethicist. Okay. Now, what about the simulacrum in, um, in um, Hang the DJ? Is it fair for them? Well, of course it is because the two people who are destined to find each other find each other. Of course it's fair. Really? Really? Is, is that, for, for what they go through, is that really right? And, and especially if those people don't know, when they've entered in their information, they don't know that they've created little cookies, like in White Christmas, we've talked about White Christmas. They're creating these cookie things that are, are unaware that, uh, that they're not us, they're not people, right? Is that really right? to sacrifice them, because that's what it is. It's a form of human sacrifice, is what it is. For, for what, for the god of, of, of uh, e-harmony, right, for romance. It's a sacrifice, it's a human sacrifice. And now, all societies believe in human sacrifice, they have from the very beginning. We still do, and don't think we don't. That's why we have war, and that's why we have the, uh, the Eucharist. Every For those who are Christian, you can't tell me that's not human sacrifice. It doesn't matter that he did it. It doesn't matter that he agreed to it. It's human sacrifice. The Aztecs, the, the uh, uh, Mexica, they're not so aberrant and horrible. They're no more or less than we. All societies have human sacrifice. Okay? Uh, and so in this case, they've decided in Hang the DJ that these, these entities, these simulacrum, who aren't really human after all, they're just numbers. They don't know that. It's okay to sacrifice them To find the algorithm that will match the right lovers. Is it? I mean, is it right? Uh, Maybe because we might agree so readily that it's right. Maybe that's what makes it wrong. Is it really fair? Is it really fair for these two people to run their little algorithm? They find each other. There they go. For what? Really? Um... And, and their memory is erased, it's restarted a thousand times, it's restarted, 998 of those thousand, they end up breaking the rules that they were programmed not to break. And then they get disintegrated by the machine at the end before they can make it all the way over the wall. Everything goes black and it's void and they're done. Well, because they're together, that's all that matters. Even in that instant before they're deleted, they are, they're together, everything else is deleted, but they still exist in that split second. It's this troubadour's romance. Well, okay, that's really warm and fuzzy in the cockles of your heart. Okay. But is that, do we really want to come away saying how right, how right that is? Oh, it's right. Yes, we accept. Well, maybe we need to accept that it is because we all want to find our romantic partner that completes us. I mean, and that goes back to the ancient Greek, of course, the, the, um, um, the symposium, which it's actually argued that human beings used to be these androgynous beings. They were both male and female in their completeness. And they were full in their completeness. They're these androgynous beings. And it was their separation. That's the great pain and injustice of this world that's denying us a paradise. And so people forever try to find their perfect mate. I mean, I, I think the idea of soulmates is, is horrible. I think it's it's done so much damage that it can't even be tabulated, okay? But, but that's the culture we live in, where people are looking for uh, a compatible partner. They'll devote decades of their lives to this, or they'll endure loneliness, lonely lives that, that are full of, of emptiness and, and pain and sorrow. Uh, and apparently now, we, we live in a society that's more lonely, although it. it, it it has more opportunities for connecting. It's more lonely than we've had before. I don't know. Ask someone from ancient Babylon. I, I don't know. Is it? The, ethics. Ethics pisses me off sometimes. Because in the end, you don't, you can't, you have to decide eventually. But you'll never feel secure in whether or not your decision is right. And maybe you shouldn't. Maybe that's ultimately what Charlie Brooker is trying to say And Hang the DJ yeah, it's fine that these two found each other and it's good and we all want romantic partners so we sympathize with them through catharsis and we agree with that. But at the sacrifice, the human sacrifice of these simulacrum, a thousand times just to see if they'll defy the programming to climb over the wall, is that really right? And I think the conclusion is that we should be uneasy about this. That... Uh, we better not feel secure. I mean, we, we maybe we, we come to our conclusion, and that's okay. You have to eventually make your stand. Everyone does, one way or the other, no matter what happens. And that, it's an admirable thing to make your stand and to fall where you stand. you know. So if you really come down on the side of, no, it's absolutely wrong to punish Victoria, okay. If you're willing to pay the price, if you're willing to be unwavering in your opinion, it is wrong what's happening to Victoria. No matter what they say or do to you, that's admirable. You go down swinging, very well. I don't think I would stand there, but maybe I would. I can sympathize with the ones who would stand there. Um, I think Charlie Brooker with these two episodes, because he's a writer of of, of great depth and of many levels, and I think he would uh, he would not necessarily approve of either of either hand the ethical stance. He would approve, rather, of, of the discomfort. He would approve of the uncertainty and the question. Yeah, you can you can make your assertion, and you can feel morally justified in standing there. And in the end, it's only a sci-fi show, right? It's just a TV program. But I hope that I'm, I'm right in assuming what he's aiming for is the discomfort of the audience. It's catharsis through discomfort this time, where you look hopefully with a similar discomfort more readily at the stuff around you in your everyday reality you don't just accept it because it feels good it seems right everyone else is saying it you you don't just buy into it right away because it seems like that's what the crowd says and you should follow them or face their wrath it's the discomfort that makes us fully human fully self-actualized these 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 endless ethical uh um, uh, questions that we can't really resolve. So I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it quits now. I think I've said more than enough to hang myself. Um, uh, so that's, that's it, the episode, um, hope you're all well, wherever you are and that you've some level of, in spite of the discomfort, it's an enjoyable discomfort. Um, there can be a lot of fun and, Enjoyment in depth of, of thought and exploration, self-exploration as well as, as exploration through fiction uh, of, of the human condition. So hopefully we're in a place tonight where uh, we can have something approximating uh, completeness, uh, and, and at least we should embrace our discomfort, if nothing more. But in any case, uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to me for this madness. Uh, Thank you very, very much for staying with me. Hope all this finds you well. And always remember, we will meet again under the shadow of the lily.